0: Welcome to episode 37 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military affiliated population. Check out all the shows, search for STMSS in the Google Play or Apple App Store, and you can download an app which will allow you to listen to all the episodes, check out the show notes, and share the episodes with somebody who you think might want to hear it. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member veteran and military family suicide. In order to get a wide range of viewpoints, we want to continue to bring you guests who have looked at the topic of suicide in the military-affiliated population for a very long time. Today's guest is certainly an experienced researcher when it comes to this topic. Shauna, what can you tell us about our guest?
1: Yeah, so Pete Gutierrez, PhD, is a licensed clinical psychologist at the VA VISM-19 MIREC and a professor in the psychiatry department at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. He's been studying suicide, focused on screening, assessment, and intervention for 20 years. He also has a clinical background, and he shared a story that shows his heart in this work, which was this. He said, after several years of therapy with a veteran who had PTSD, suicide risk, and depression, I thought we'd gotten to a place of true safety. We had addressed many of the issues that were causing that veteran to wanna die. And that veteran made a near lethal suicide attempt. After a late afternoon appointment with me, they called my office to thank me for my help, tell me it wasn't my fault, they couldn't be fixed and to say goodbye. After hanging up, they shut off their cell phone and I couldn't reach them. I rallied suicide prevention resources, called their family members until I reached someone and eventually they were found by EMS. They survived, we doubled down on our clinical work and they never made another attempt. That terrible afternoon increased my empathy for people struggling with suicide, but it also helped me better relate to those who care about and try so hard to help those who see suicide as the only solution to their problems.
0: I appreciate having Pete on the show. Uh, as you mentioned before we started recording, Pete and I know each other well, have worked together in a number of different settings. And and he is one of my personal go-to folks whenever I have questions. And also a lot of the work that he does that he speaks about in the show. I definitely hope that uh, people will get something great out of this conversation. Let's get back into it and come back afterwards to pull out some of the key points. Indeed, I'm really glad that you are able to come on the show, definitely looking at individuals that have been doing this, suicide prevention research, and you've been doing this for a very long time. One of the things that you've been able to see is stuff that doesn't work, but more importantly, things that do seem to work. So from your opinion, what do you think works when it comes to preventing suicide in the military population? Hmm. That's a good question, Dwayne, and, and I'm, I'm very happy to be on the show as well.
2: I think what has worked really well in the military goes back to the comprehensive community-based suicide prevention efforts that the Air Force undertook in the early to mid-90s, when the Air Force Surgeon General said suicide is an Air Force problem if we're going to tackle this problem, the entire force has got to work on it. And so it was both a top-down and a bottom-up approach. And what the Air Force did was to say, we need to look at our entire community and what's happening in our community that's driving suicide risk, what's protective against suicide, How do we strengthen those things that are protective and address the things that that increase risk? And so they took a concept that's, that's familiar to anyone who's ever worn the uniform, and that is, you've got your battle buddies, or in the Air Force, you've got your wingman, and you are responsible for your wingman. And they applied that to suicide prevention, and they gave people the training and the tools that they needed to recognize when someone was in distress and to ask them the right questions. To start off by saying, hey, it seems like something's not going so well for you. How are you doing? Introducing that and then to ask specifically about suicide. So they trained bottom up and top down. And so all the leaders were told, you're responsible for everybody in your unit, obviously. And that applies to suicide prevention as well. And then they, they strengthened the clinical capacity to deal with that. They also looked at problems within the community that drive suicide risk, so substance use, domestic violence, other things like that, and created the supports around those issues as well. And it ended up being an incredibly effective program. So for a period of time when the program was fully implemented, fully supported, suicides within the Air Force went down 30 or 40 percent, and then things changed, and there was less support for the program. So I think what that experience really shows is that whether we're talking about within the military or in civilian populations... Suicide prevention needs to be a community-based effort, and it really requires local knowledge of that community, which is why here in Colorado, uh, for the last boy, five years, I guess, we've been involved with something called the Colorado National Collaborative, which I know you're very familiar with. And this is a collaboration between the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment's Office of Suicide Prevention, a whole range of state agencies, the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus, the School of Public Health, Colorado State, other universities, the VA, where I work, and specifically the Rocky Mountain Mental Illness Research and Education Clinical Center, or the MIRIC, which is one of our primary research centers, and our focus is on suicide prevention, but also partnering with the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Suicide Prevention Resource Center that's run out of the Educational Development Center in Waltham, Massachusetts the University of Rochester and their Injury Prevention Control Research Center. And what we have done in Colorado is, at the county level, we identified six counties with the highest burdens of suicide in the state. And it worked out well that it's a mix of front-range counties and western slope counties, urban areas, rural areas. And we started talking with the local community folks who were involved in suicide prevention in each of those counties and started building out their coalitions and then talking with them on a regular basis about what does the science say about suicide prevention, what are the resources that you need in your community to effectively address the problems that are driving suicide in your community. And so this has been something that we have been working on, like I said, for about five years, building out the infrastructure, figuring out what are the evidence-based practices that, that should be used in each community, because of course each one is a little different. And then how are we going to evaluate this? Because what we want to demonstrate is if we can effectively reduce suicide rates in those six counties, we can take what we learned there, expand it statewide, and if it works for the entire state, then we have a model that we can share with all the other states
0: and say, hey, we we may have figured out how to tackle suicide. Which is a big lift, obviously. And in, in that idea of, for example, using your example of the Air Force the Air Force had the capacity to tell the people down on the community level, right? So the Department of the Air Force was able to go to Tinker Air Force Base and say, you will do this. And the people at Tinker Air Force Base probably had something that was different than Pope Air Force Base or or Minot, North Dakota, for example, but translating that as a researcher, looking at that, how do you translate that from the military when they have the resources at both the strategic level and the operational level, where that may not be there in the community, where yes, the resources are there ostensibly at the strategic level, but maybe less so at the operational level. Yeah, that's that's been a big challenge. And one of, one of the
2: early lessons we learned with, with CNC is that there is no top down in that model. Like you said, there is no single authority that just says to a county, this is what you're going to do. And we thought we were aware of that, but we pretty quickly realized we weren't aware of it enough. And there was a now kind of infamous meeting that we had here in Denver uh, a couple of years ago where we brought the community partners in, and it was supposed to be kind of this two-day launch kind of workshop. And it got derailed very quickly because we we being the the state and national partners realized there was far too much of this. We're the experts, we know what ought to be done, and and we weren't talking with. The community partners enough. And we very quickly adjusted. I mean, literally at the end of the first day of this two-day meeting, the leadership got together and completely reworked the plan for the second day. And since then, things have gone much better. And, and so what one of the challenges that that highlighted is needing to be able to work from the bottom up in communities and providing the resources and the connections that are helpful for a local suicide prevention coalition to talk with the mayor's office with the county commissioners with with the leadership at the local level to figure out in each community what resources exist what are potential sources to bring in additional resources and so so It's been much more of this helping to make connections, helping to support the conversations, providing the research and the data that say, well, this is what the picture is in this county of what suicide looks like, because we've got state data that can drill down to the county level to inform that, and then saying, and this is what we know from the science about what can be effective. So what can we do in this county to support implementing those particular interventions? Where do the resources exist or how do we access the additional resources that we need? So it's been a lot of not just coalition building in terms of forging relationships between individuals and different agencies, but also finding the resources and bringing the resources to bear, which often is a conversation with city or county leadership that says, hey, we need more money. And those of you who control the purse strings, here's why we need it. And this is what it's going to cost. And what
0: can you do? That's in in really specifically breaking down those resources, the two most valuable are time and money, right? Yes, there's money. And arguably time is more valuable than money. As you mentioned, I'm involved in our local suicide prevention coalition, but it's one of five different things that I'm doing, right? And even in the military, it was the suicide prevention was always an additional duty. Whereas sort of the higher you get up in the strategic level, the more your focus, your your life's work arguably is suicide prevention. That's what you do in your various roles, but all of them are doing something with specifically suicide prevention. It's almost as if the farther down we get into the community, the less specificity, or even the less framework that we have to be able to support what we need to do.
2: Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree, and I think something else we really learned over the years from from the CNC effort is that there's a lot of expertise at the local level, and that doesn't necessarily mean that there are suicide prevention research experts or scientists in every county in the state. But what it means is. There are plenty of people who care about suicide prevention who are experts on their communities and who are experts on how do we support the people in our community who are struggling, right? Because anybody can play and should play an active role in suicide prevention, right? Anybody can learn the skills that are necessary to say to a neighbor, to someone at their church, to someone at their kid's school, are you okay? I know you lost your job, right? And I know that things are really hard, right? And it's, you're having, your opportunities to find another job are, they're not there. And I understand that when people lose their job and when they're struggling to find another one and they're feeling really, you know, down and, and depressed and, and hopeless, Sometimes people think about suicide when that happens. And you can learn to say to a neighbor, are you thinking about suicide? And it doesn't mean you have to be a clinician who can then start some kind of treatment to to directly intervene. But anybody can ask about suicide and then listen to what the person has to say. Because sometimes what the person needs in the moment is just someone who's going to listen to them. They're not, they're not to the point where they're actively planning to kill themselves. They're feeling lost. They're feeling hopeless. They feel like no one understands. And if they have someone who can listen to them and someone who knows enough to say, I'm not the expert, I can't necessarily help fix what's going on, but I do know that there's this agency in our community that's providing assistance for finding jobs or that there, there is a crisis line and here's the crisis line phone number. That's not that hard to learn. There are ways to learn that that are effective. And the more people in any given community who have those
0: skills, the safer the whole community is. And again, going back to your example of the Air Force is as the training was provided at the lowest level, That operations NCO or that flight commander, they knew that they weren't a clinician, but they had those resources metaphorically and probably even literally in their hip pocket, right? That they were able to say, to send people there. And it's in and like you said, that's one thing to be able to have that in sort of a closed system loop in the military. It's another thing to try to get that in different communities to get the people. We've talked here about foreclosures, right? Is an indicator, homelessness, all of these different things. And so how do we get someone who is processing a foreclosure loan, for example, to also think about what is this going to do to someone? And that may be an extreme example, but bartenders are sometimes the best therapists, kind of thing or restaurant managers and their workers or a, a number of different things, but getting, and this is about getting education and awareness into the community, so we don't have to we, we get involved in prevention, we don't always have to rely on intervention, which is what people think about when it comes to suicide.
2: Yeah, oh I I absolutely agree. And and there have been lots of creative solutions to that education awareness piece over the years. You mentioned bartenders. There was this ingenious campaign that happened in, I think it was in Ireland. This is maybe 15 years ago or so, where the, the local crisis line had, I don't know, tens of thousands of coasters made up that had the crisis line phone number on, on it, and they handed them out to all the pubs in the community. And so the bartenders started putting out these coasters instead of the ones that they had been using. So not only were the patrons seeing the crisis line information every time they picked their pint glass up and set it back down, but it was also reminding the bartenders that that resource existed within their community. And I mean, it wasn't a formal training or anything, but it's not rocket science to come up with things like that. It doesn't take someone with a PhD and tons of research experience to think of solutions like that. Any... Coalition in any community who's thinking about the problem of suicide and being a little bit creative can come up with those kinds of solutions that could potentially save lives through something no more complicated than a coaster
0: in a pub. Is that something that could be a gap, is that uh, people are thinking that suicide prevention is the role of me as a clinician, or you as a researcher, or these professionals, right? This is something that belongs in the hands of someone other than me, and and I don't know what to do. Absolutely, absolutely. And taking off my VA hat and putting on
2: a different hat that I, I acquired Fairly recently, I, I also now work for a company called Living Works Education. And Living Works is probably best known in, in the community for our assist training. So applied suicide intervention skills training. But that's just one of a, a suite of, of training products that we offer. And the guiding principle behind Living Works is that you don't have to be a clinician or a professional working within suicide prevention in order to make a difference that everybody can learn the basic skills to ask about suicide and to listen to what the person has to say and to know that it's not up to you to intervene. That like you said, Duane, you're doing suicide prevention, that you are, you are being empathetic, you're being caring, you're showing to another human being that you're worried about them, and that you will help them find the help they need, and that the responsibility is not yours, right? All you are responsible for doing is asking the right questions, and then listening to what the person has to say. And Living Works has trained plenty of farmers and bartenders and teachers, as well as nurses and doctors and lawyers. But there's, there's no minimum education required. There's no professional experience required. Anybody can go to a workshop. Anybody can learn these basic skills to, to play a role in suicide prevention in, in your community,
0: wherever your community is. These are some of the emerging themes that we're getting out of this series of of podcasts is that it has to be community-based, it's not all all on the clinical professionals, and that it's not this massive responsibility. One of the things that people are really interested in is is what do I do, right? What action steps can I take? How can I make a difference? Because whether you're talking about military-related population or just general population, People are, are frustrated and upset about the suicide rate in their community as well as in the nation. What are some of the action steps that you recommend that people take when it comes to maybe learning more or doing more? I, I think that a couple
2: of things. So probably the most important thing is to know that you're not going to make things worse if you directly ask someone if they're thinking about suicide, okay? This is a a myth that has persisted for as long as I've been involved in, in suicide prevention work. And that's been a long time. So it is absolutely safe to ask someone directly, are you thinking about suicide or are you thinking about killing yourself? And the, the hard part is that can be a scary question to ask. Because if the person you ask that question to says yes, then your heart rate goes up because you're like, "Uh uh-oh, now I have to do something. But really, the most important thing you can do after asking that question is to just listen to what the person has to say. When the National Suicide Prevention Crisis Line was evaluated by Maddie Gould and her team at Columbia several years ago, one of the things that, that they learned from that research is that, It's having someone to listen to you that may actually be the magic ingredient of why crisis lines are effective. Because acute suicidal crises, and this is what we do know from the research, they're pretty short. It may be 10 or 15 minutes when you're at the most risk of acting on the thoughts that you're having. And if that 10 or 15 minutes happens, while you're talking to someone who's able to listen and to not judge you and who's not afraid to say the word suicide, that may be the only intervention that you need to get through that crisis period. That doesn't mean that you're not going to think about suicide again. That doesn't mean that you're no longer at risk for suicide. But what that does mean is that that then gives you the time to help them figure out what more do I need to do to stay safe? Do I need to talk to my doctor about maybe starting an antidepressant medication? Do I need to think about finding a counselor or a therapist? Do I need to more actively deal with my financial problems? Because that's really what's driving me to the point where suicide seems like it's the only solution to my problems. And those are skills that, like I said, people can learn, and there are trainings out there. Of course, I'm biased towards the Living Works trainings now, um, but they are not the only ones. There's, there's QPR, there's, there's other ones. So I would just encourage listeners to do a Google search, see what's available, get a little training and education, be a little bit more aware about the problem, and that the first step is asking about suicide and listening to what the person has to
0: say. I appreciate that. And I think maybe somebody are like, okay, what other action steps besides that? Because it is a big one and it is a very personal one. But as as you well know, in in our work together, I agree. I do think that that is the one thing that we can do is reach out to the person next to us and be cool to each other and don't be a jerk and, uh, and take some time to listen. Pete, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. It was my pleasure, Dwayne. Dr. Gutierrez brings a long history of research and, as you mentioned, practice in the topic of suicide prevention in the military-affiliated population.
1: Yeah, I was so refreshed to hear his willingness to openly acknowledge one of the potential risks of expertise. He's been at this for 20 years. He has well-established credentials. But he talked about, in this interview, the idea that sometimes experts can feel assured of their knowledge and failed to respect the wisdom of those who are most directly impacted. So what does right look like in practice when well-established experts respect those with that lived experience? It looks like them asking questions. What are the biggest challenges you face right now in your community? And how can we support you best? So what does right look like? It's the extension of empathy and respect at scale. It is coming alongside people and being an eloquent listener. It is designing evidence-informed strategies that are adapted to the challenges and opportunities at hand.
0: No, that's, that's absolutely right. That puts me in mind of a question that I often get as a combat veteran who is a mental health counselor about how I manage that, say, in a therapeutic session. In. And I will get veterans who will start to talk about some incident that occurred while they were deployed, and then they'll stop and say, oh, but you know what it was like because you were there. And then I say, I know what happened to me, and I know how I felt about it, but I need to know how you feel about it. And so I think that, and this is the case, is that some people with lived experience may be able to, may, like you said, rely on that expertise and miss an opportunity to understand that the person that we're working with is the expert on themselves.
1: That is very much true. Experts sometimes come in and they believe they know what they know, but you're absolutely right. We think just because somebody served in the military, they're culturally competent. There is actually a risk that somebody would project their own experience into the experience of one of the patients they're serving. And that's equally unhelpful. So it really is about people that are healers, really setting aside what they think they know and being eloquent listeners. The other point that I wanted to pull out is that Pete mentioned that there's not just one solution for suicide. And he highlighted this specific, very creative, low-cost initiative run out of Ireland with the coasters that were placed in the pubs. This is a great example of what can happen when we listen to outside-the-box ideas. As we tape this episode, I'm reflecting on September's National Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. Chris Jokomik, a retired Air Force veteran, recently posted a comment on my LinkedIn about the warrior reunions I've been attending and supporting for the last few This is what he said. September is Suicide Prevention Month. We spend a lot of time talking about the lack of progress for vets. Vets have succeeded in many ways. We must end the broken veteran stereotype. Here's the story of veterans working to protect each other from a different kind of epidemic for which there is no single cure. And to this and to Pete's point, I would say Chris and Pete are absolutely spot on. I would stand with Chris here in firmly but politely calling BS on any message that says we still don't know how to prevent veteran suicide. Through my longtime partnerships with warriors, we've identified powerful ways to prevent tragic outcomes. Build deep trust with any veteran, and you've just developed the best expert with the most insight on how to save their own life. They will tell you what they need, and when you meet that need in that trusted relationship, they will stay connected to hope. We don't know everything, and we definitely don't control all outcomes, but there are strategies that work, and figuring this out begins with humility and willingness to listen.
0: That's absolutely correct. And and I've come to as we're over halfway through this, this project that we're working on is that the title of the show is a little bit of a misnomer, because there is no single solution to the suicide epidemic. And so we're seeking the military suicide solution, but there is no the solution. And at the same time, there are solutions. And I think this is where we need to really change how we're thinking about this is that we want the one intervention that works and no single intervention works. And it's a combination that will work with different individuals or with the same individual at different times.
1: Yeah. I talked to somebody yesterday who was really interesting. She's a Marine artist who travels around the country and she shares her art and teaches people how to use art to heal. And in our conversation, she talked about how for her, it was being on the road, doing art, just these different things that she's combining that are her wellness plan that's working really well for her. And so you're right. There's no like central code that if we crack it, we're going to be able to know the solution for everybody, but there are lots of things that work and individuals can help us figure out what that is for them.
0: Uh, that's true. And, and I think that Pete with his, his many years of experience in this, and he has seen that. And I know personally that Pete is just as frustrated about this as many of the rest of us are. So I was glad we were able to have him come on the show. We appreciate everybody taking the time to check it out. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS37, or by downloading the app by searching STMSS in the Apple app or Google Play stores. In the show notes, you can get links to everything we talked about in this episode, as well as finding the show on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions and let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group, moderated by the outstanding D. James, by going to veteranmentalhealthcom forward slash group. You can find out more about the work that is doing by checking out her latest book, Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us, and the work that I'm doing by checking out my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror, Mental Health and Wellness in Post-Military Life. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to them in the show notes.
1: Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we're not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician.
0: And always remember you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing one, chat online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about Seeking the Military Suicide Solution and make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.